through our efforts, but it depends upon him who has promised. And his promises are yea and amen. It's settled. The work that he has done, that he's begun, he will complete. And one day, when he comes back, we'll stand before him unashamed, clothed in the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to continue this morning in, our, in the book of John. I hope you're not being worn out with the book of John. We're going at snail's pace. But we could even go slower. Uh, I looked in the writings of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I don't know how he could get so many sermons out of so few verses. But uh, we'll try to move and press along this morning. So we'll begin by reading the text. We'll be, begin reading in John chapter 1 with verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, and he saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Samuel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of, Is you're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray again. Our gracious God and Father, we simply now ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts that the Spirit might teach us those things which were profitable for our uh, ability to worship you. We ask this to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look in today's text, I want to highlight two statements. The first is found in verse 41. Andrew proclaims to Simon, his brother, we have found the Messiah. The second is found in verse 
49, Nathanael responds to Jesus by proclaiming, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. I highlight these two proclamations of faith because they point to what we have read each week concerning the purpose of the book of John. If you'll remember in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I'll read it to you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this is the John writing at the end of the book, the purpose of the book, but we see already in the first chapter in the calling of the disciples that the Holy Spirit is at work and the purpose is accomplished. It's effectual. These men proclaim He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. In today's text, John records for us the account of how Jesus began to call out men who would become his disciples, then apostles who would form the foundation of the church. But before we begin, I think it's important to notice that after John's prologue, he follows up with one story built upon another story. If we go through John, you'll see these, these stories develop. He does not proceed with a litany of doctrinal statements, but proceeds through the medium of drama. Now, the way I'm using drama is, I looked it up in the dictionary, uh, it's not an act, it's not a play, but I'm using it in the sense of, of storytelling. And the second definition in the, in the uh, dictionary is, is an, an emotive encounter, it's oftentimes a conflict. We talk about in our week, there was a lot of drama in my week last week. But that's the way I'm using it, and I'm using it also because it fits with an alliteration in my sermon. It is out of these dramatic events that doctrine has been developed. And it's from doctrine that doxology is produced. We see these proclamations. Now, I, I, we use what they call evangelistic imagination or uh, privilege. We, we assume certain things. But I can't believe that as these men discover who Jesus is, that they just take it nonchalantly. No, they're excited. And we'll see why perhaps later. But out of doxology, devotion in discipleship is produced. A lot of times we preach discipleship and we preach devotion to God. But we have no foundation. We have no basis. There's no doxology. There's no wonder. There's no excitement at the person of God and His Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's because our, uh, our, our doctrine is weak. Uh, we read the stories as moral examples, and I think that we'll see that in this story there's some very profound doctrinal issues, though they're not pointed out by John the writer. If you look at your bulletin and notice the title of the sermon, it's simply, Those He Foreknew, He Called, with the subtitle, The Effectual Work of the Triune God. We hope this morning to demonstrate from this text that through the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture, the Old Testament, men respond to the call of Jesus by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I want to present this in three sections, the context of the call, 
the content of the call, and the consequence of the call. First, the context of the call. John, again, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he, John, looked at Jesus as he walked by. Just several observations. If I might borrow from Ben's sermon, or at least a part of Ben's sermon last week, uh, we will develop here not ordinary families, but ordinary people. And I add ordinary people in the hands of the omnipotent and immutable triune God. We have already mentioned that this is a historical record, and as such, John puts it in terms of space and time. The next day, Bethsaida, along the way, he walked. We see these actions taking place. John the Evangelist does not include the sequence of events leading up to this point as recorded in the other Gospels. He leaves out the baptism of Christ, though he mentions it, and he leaves out the temptation of Christ. And so it's assumed that his readers would be familiar with these things, and he has a different purpose in his book, as we've already recorded. He's pointing to the signs and what they represent and what they point to in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, he does not record the baptism of Jesus, though John references it earlier in verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. He saw the anointing of the Christ, the Christ who was born in a virgin's womb by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And yet he saw the Holy Spirit come down to anoint Christ in his public ministry. He was indeed the anointed, the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach. He does not include the temptation of Christ in the wilderness that followed his anointing with the Holy Spirit. No, the evangelist begins with three ordinary people, two of which will spread the call to other ordinary people. Observation. Certainly John the Baptist's calling was unique, extraordinary, as was the calling and the commission of the apostles. But we must never lose sight of what made their calling and commission extraordinary. It was not that they were special people. They were ordinary people. What makes it special is the one who called them and commissioned them and equipped them. And that's simply the omnipotent and immutable triune God. Question. Do you realize, realize and relish the fact that the same omnipotent and immutable triune God that called them is the same God that has called and commissioned and will equip you. Now there are major differences between the context of their calling and our, our calling, but there is one common denominator I think we'll see in the end. The first dis difference is that the first disciples were all Jews. There may be a, a Jew here, but we're not all Jews. This was the, these were the first disciples that were called. <clears throat> these were men who until this time had only looked to and lived with the promises of God. Uh, we do not know at what point or time, except perhaps John, with John the Baptist, we don't know when they believed along with Abraham, their father, the word of God. We do not have to assume that they were subject, we do not have to assume that they were subject to the Torah and the admonition and the promises found in Deuteronomy 6. 
because we see that they believe the scriptures. It'll be demonstrated in their response to Christ. In Deuteronomy 6, we read, <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Mark this, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Anybody been to a Jewish home and seen the mezuzahs? A little, well, they're all kinds of shapes. Inside is a scripture. And if you've ever, when we went to Israel, we got to London, and there were a group of uh, Hasidic Jews there, and they broke out into a quorum, and they started wrapping their phylactery, and they put the little box around their head and their prayer shawls on. And, and they took literally... Uh, the words that are taught here. These men were exposed and knew the scripture, and I believe that all of these disciples, from the earliest years of their lives, though they were poor fishermen from a backwater town, they knew the word of God. They appreciated the word of God. I think that they lived by the word of God. They lived with the expectation of the promises to be fulfilled by God. Several evidences to prove my point. One, they were disciples of John, and as disciples of John, they had no reason for us to doubt that they had repented of sin and had been baptized by him. Evidence two, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, they knew from Scripture and experienced the significance of the sacrifices found in the Scriptures. Evidence three, look at verse 41. Andrew says, We have found the Messiah. This indicates what? Andrew and Simon had a messianic hope. They had an anticipation, an expectation of the coming of the Messiah. Evidence number four, in verse 45, it is evident, it is explicitly clear. Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. There's a parallel scripture to this, if you remember in the last chapter of Luke, where the men are downhearted, they're going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus comes along, and they don't recognize him, and he asks them why they're so down and gloomy and all of this, and says, we had expected that the one, uh, that Jesus would conquer, that he would take over, and he was crucified. Where have you been? <laughs> Asking Jesus that. And he said, oh, you slow and foolish of heart. And he went through the law of Moses and he went through the prophets and he taught them these things. And he said, these are the things that speak of me. And finally, in verse 49, Nathaniel responds to Jesus with perhaps, perhaps, I don't know, Psalm 2 in mind when he exclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Peter uses that same text to, uh, to point to Christ as the king of Israel. So what is the common denominator between them and us? I would suggest to you that they believe and you believe because the spirit of the living God removes hearts of stone and creates within us hearts of flesh. Recall what we just sang. I know not 
how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith within. But I would suggest to you that these ordinary men and we as ordinary people come to faith by the same means, through the preaching or the teaching or the reading or the sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The content of the message. May I try to clarify the word call? Okay, I'm not saying just explicitly or overtly we talk about calling someone, but I'm including more than this. I'm thinking about it this way. I'm thinking about not only the explicit calls as seen in verse 39, come and see, or as in verse 43, follow me, or again in verse 46, come and see. I'm thinking about the implicit call to faith and obedience found in every proclamation in every presentation of Christ in Scripture. This is God's holy word. It's a revelation of who he is. And as we hear it, it demands of us, it requires of us a response of faith and obedience. That's why I'm saying that every sign, every word, every proclamation that Jesus made and the others made are a call to faith and obedience. So what is the content of the call? It can be summarized in one name, Jesus. That's the call. We are called to Jesus. We are called to believe in him as the mediator between God and man. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. These men, the disciples of John, Andrew, and the unnamed second disciple, and I'll say he's unnamed, but most people believe this is John, the beloved. John does not refer to himself in the gospel, but uh, it refers to John the evangelist, Simon, Andrew's brother, Philip, and Nathaniel. All saw Jesus in the flesh. Perhaps you've had the same experience or you've heard, or maybe you've said it yourself. I, I can identify with the, uh, the sentiment. So often I've heard someone muse as to what it would be like to have seen Jesus. Brothers and sisters, not all who saw Jesus with their physical eyes and not all who were recipients of his miraculous signs believed in him. It was only to those to whom it was given. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 speaks of those who are perishing and he writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then by contrast, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the common denominator. It's the Holy Spirit who draws and opens and illumines and gives us faith and creates life within through the preaching of God's word. Makes us accept and believe the gospel. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. This is a consequence of the call. It's not only hearing but following Jesus. Returning to our text, let's take a few minutes to see the context and the content and the consequences of the pre presentation and proclamation of Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, 
what, what are you seeking? It is here that we observe, make this observation, is there anything counterintuitive as to Jesus' question, what are you seeking? Wouldn't you expect him to say, who are you seeking? Well, I mean, they didn't ask, uh, I mean that he didn't ask them, who are you seeking? But he asked them, what are you seeking? And I would suggest to you that these followers of John who had been baptized, who had repented, never had the satisfaction and rest of knowing that their sins had been taken care of once and for all. May I further suggest that they didn't find in that baptism the Son of God. Note this word. He tells them, behold the Lamb of God. Uh, as we mentioned in the past, they were familiar with all of the sacrifices of animals, uh, birds, grains, on Jewish altars slain. Perhaps they remembered the Passover lamb that their forefathers had selected from the herd to serve as an atonement or a covering for the family. But this is not the lamb, this is not the lamb provided by man, but this is the lamb provided by God. Maybe they now remembered the ram that God provided for Abraham as a substitute. You remember, he was going to offer his son and God stayed his hand just as he was bringing down the knife in obedience. And God stayed and he, he said, I'll provide a sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. Perhaps the they were familiar with Isaiah 53. And even as Jesus was speaking and as they thought, behold, the Lamb of God. They began to, it began to take on a new meaning when they remembered the words, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus says, no man takes my life. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. Jesus was no victim. He was a voluntary sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God offering himself for the sins of his own. Or the animals that they brought from the priest at the temple, they remembered the sacrifice, the ram of God. They were seeking, what I suggest, they were seeking salvation. And of course, their salvation found in no other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said to him, continuing, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. If you remember from the, the text above, it tells us that Jesus was walking by. In the first encounter, he walks towards John, but here he's walking by, and John makes this proclamation, points him out as the Lamb of God, and they turn and they begin to follow him. Uh, perhaps they were asking him, where are you staying? Because they wanted an invitation to follow him, and that's exactly what they got. He says, come and see, come and follow me. They got there, they spent the day with him, and at four o'clock in the afternoon, the 10th hour, it began to become dark. And the idea is that they probably spent the night, probably talked into the night. Can you imagine the questions that they had that no one had ever been able to answer before? In his unique way. Jesus, the, uh, if you remember when he taught, he says, he speaks as a man with authority. 
At this time, the rabbis would say, well, this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this. It, there was not the explicit authority. There were debates among the rabbis as to the meaning of Scripture. But Jesus gave a certain and a clarion call as to who he was and what the Old Testament <coughs> Scriptures were teaching. One of the two disciples, <coughs> excuse me, we don't know all that Jesus said to them, but we can surmise that some of the content by the response of Andrew. Andrew gets up, and we read in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, looked at Peter, and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. There are several things going on here, and it seems redundant for John to identify one of the disciples and not the other. But he, most commentaries, as we've said, identify the unnamed disciple as G, John the Evangelist. It's also noteworthy that John identifies Andrew as Peter's brother. I mean, how would you like to, you don't have your own identity, but you're, you're identified by your brother. This is, this is Peter's brother. This is uh, Edward's brother. You, you know, you don't have your own identity. Uh, and, um, John identifies Andrew as Peter's brother, and in verse 40, this is basically does the same thing. If the rest of the world sees Andrew only, I'm making a suggestion here, if the rest of the world only saw Andrew as Peter's brother, I feel certain that Peter never forgot that it was Andrew who introduced him to the Christ. A consequence of Andrew's brief time with Jesus had a profound consequence. It turned him, him into a fisher of men. Remember, he... We'll read that later in the Gospels. He, with deliberation, sought and found the first man, Peter, his brother. Then, I believe, with great excitement and urgency, he proclaimed, we have found the Messiah. But he was not satisfied to simply share the good news. He had to bring Simon, what? His next, he brought Simon to Jesus. So the context, or the content, is not John the Baptist. The content of this, this story, this uh, narrative, is not Andrew or even Simon, but is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Too often we forget and we focus on these models for how to evangelize, these models, and we, we throw them as, up as an example. But Jesus is the one who came to seek. He is the one who commissioned. He is the one, as we said, equipped them and worked in them so that they might follow his example. As a consequence, proclaimers began begetting proclaimers. That's what we should do. We should be begetting, not an end in ourselves to come to faith, but we should be getting, be begetting other proclaimers. Now we have a reversal. Uh, uh, first of all, John, just observation, Jesus looked at him, Simon, he says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, 
Now we have a reversal. Men had been looking to Jesus, and now Jesus looks at Simon and gives him a new name. On the word level, can you think of uh, someone else giving names? I would suggest to you uh, that you might think of uh, God who renamed Abram, called him Abraham, or Sarai, called her Sarah. Uh, Jacob gave him the new name Israel. And of course, what he's doing here, God is going to give us a name, a new name, a new name in glory. So we continue. John, as he records this significant, insignificant detail, he's looking back from the time Remember, John the Evangelist is looking back. He's writing many years later, and he's looking back as he observed the interaction between Jesus and Peter. And you can hear the words, upon this rock. Uh, all of this fits together. Jesus had intention and purpose, and he knew how he was going to use Peter. The next day, G Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he, mark this, he, found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They perhaps, said, I believe, knew each other from a small town. And the drama continues with Jesus going to the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Here Jesus finds Philip and invites, you pick your word, he invites, he calls, he commands him to follow, and he does. We don't know how much time Philip spent with Jesus, but it was long enough for him to go and seek his friend. Next verse. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. As I read this passage, I couldn't help but chuckle uh, at that line. It says that, uh, chuckle at Philip's proclamation, Nathaniel, we have found. You remember, it's, Jesus found him. Uh, he didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. Philip was. He says, how soon, I couldn't help but think, how soon I forget that it is God who initiates and I simply respond, he, I love him because he first loved me. I seek him because he sought me. He is the one who initiates, and I simply, or we simply respond. Jesus was sent to seek out those who belonged to him. Now it was Jesus who found Philip, and not Philip searching for and find, now Philip searches for and finds Nathaniel. I think it's interesting in both cases that it says that, uh, Andrew found Peter, and Nathaniel, uh, uh, Philip found Nathaniel. In other words, they didn't bump into each other the road. There was intention here. He went, looked, searched, and found him. I don't know where he found him, but then he begins to, to teach him and proclaim to him. And he proclaims, we have found him who Moses in the law and also, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I can't help but observe that these ordinary men, fishermen, were steeped in the scriptures, and yet these very words will be used by Jesus with the two men, as we've mentioned, on the road to Emmaus. I won't make much of Nathaniel's comment about Nazareth, only to point out that our, often our expectation of great things come from great places. 
And that's not the way God works. He reverses things. How many times in the scriptures when our expectation is the oldest son would receive the privilege that he chose the younger son? It's the simple things. It's the plain things that he has chosen to confound the wise of this world. <clears throat> Perhaps Nathaniel would have expected him to come from Bethlehem, the the city of David, or perhaps even from Jerusalem, the city of God. But no, he came from Nazareth, this little backwater town. Now Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We might... And should ask, why are these particular set of events included? And what did they tell us? Jesus had many other encounters and did many other signs, but these are included that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want us to note three things. Jesus saw Nathaniel physically coming towards him. Jesus was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, but he also came in the flesh. And he had physical eyes, and he beheld Nathaniel with his physical eyes in much the same way we would see people with our physical eyes. He saw his outside as any man would. And yet Jesus, as Nathaniel recognized, knew him on the inside, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. Finally, Jesus demonstrates to Nathaniel that he foreknew him or saw him before sitting while he was sitting under the fig tree. This is a miraculous sign, and what was the consequence of its presentation? Nathaniel proclaims, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, when I said that we find drama, this is a dramatic story. Uh, I don't do it justice, uh, but let it speak for itself. Here's Jesus. He sees him coming. He knows him, and he's foreseen. Where we get our foreknowledge from It's from texts like this. That's where Paul gets it from. It's from texts like this, from the Gospels, and as Jesus taught him, and then he writes that those he foreknew, he called. May I? ask you why Nathaniel didn't say to Jesus, I perceive that you're a prophet. Or perhaps he could have said to him, God must have revealed this to you. What we, what's going on here and what Jesus is demonstrating and what John is demonstrating in his gospel, it, the, Jesus shares the same attributes of God. God is omnipotent. God sees and he knows all things. And Jesus was able to see. How many times in the gospels does he perceive what's going on in the minds of those around him? As we've tried to demonstrate, a great deal of the context in which the drama takes place is found in the fact that these men knew their Bibles. It was through the Word of God that they interpreted the events of life. Though again, I would point out that it was the Word as applied to their hearts and minds by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know which Old Testament text may have run through Nathaniel's mind, but these are some possibilities. As Jesus 
tells him that he foresaw. And he says, this is a great sign. Okay, Psalm 44, 21. Would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. 1 Kings 8, 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. Render it to each according to all his ways who heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all men. Brothers and sisters, except for the finished work of Christ on the cross, these verses should greatly disturb us. To know that the sovereign, holy, thrice holy God of the universe knows our hearts. Yet he intimately knows and has known us from all eternity. For the choir director, David writes to the choir director in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me. And known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. A few verses down, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Again, I would suggest to you that he knows our weaknesses and our frailty. He knows your fears and your doubts. He knows the longing of your heart, for he has created a new heart within you. And I must confess with the psalmist that these things are too high for me. I don't have to understand. I simply bow and give thanks and worship to him. The consequences of the sign of the knowledge and the foreknowledge was used by the Spirit to create faith in Jesus and the heart of Nathaniel. Jesus goes on to say, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. God's will, as we go through the New Testament or through the book of John, we'll see greater things. What a promise to Nathaniel. And for sure, Nathaniel would see other great things. And the greatest thing that he would ever see and behold is the resurrection of his crucified Lord who died for his sins. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and des ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Three things in closing to note from this verse. Jesus uses the first time, truly, truly, to emphasize his authority and veracity with what he speaks. Also, the, the pronoun you is in the plural, suggesting that Jesus is not just speaking to Nathaniel, but he's speaking to other disciples. And the promise is that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Israel, both of which are correct, Jesus proclaims himself to be the Son of Man. The great takeaway for the first disciples and for us is that just as they have been looking forward and then were finally found their Messiah. We have also been found and we wait with eager anticipation that day when the heavens will open and he will descend. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I'll ask you to take your hymns, hymn, or the insert, and we'll sing together from uh, the insert.